Our scripture reading for this morning is from Psalm 69, 6-9. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach, you have fallen on me. From John chapter 2, 13 to 22, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. can get some audio. There we go. It's coming in. So this is our second week uh, in this, this new series, Zealous for Good Works. That is a quote directly from the scriptures. Titus 2.14 tells us that this is what God has redeemed us for. And we talked about last week the important distinction uh, when it comes to good works. We are not saved by good works. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that no one is saved by works. Uh, that, lest anyone should boast, this is a free gift of God. Grace is a gift. So we're not saved by good works. However, we are saved for good works. That is exactly what Titus says. This is what God did. He redeemed the people for His own possession, this treasured people, for the purpose of good works. And so we are looking in the Scripture at the instances where we are called to be zealous for something. We are called to be zealous for some kind of good work. And beginning on the inside and our, our life with God, uh, we're going to talk about being zealous for God's name. And then that will extend out as we finish up these, this series in a few weeks out to other things like serving and also caring for the poor and other things that the Scripture actually tells us we should be eager enthusiastic and zealous to do as the people of God. But today, we are looking at being zealous for God's name, following our Savior Jesus in His zeal for God's house. And we're going to talk about why that, the zeal for the house is actually a zeal for God's name. And let's uh, ask for God's help before we dive into that today. Father, You are already with us. You've already forgiven us in your son, Jesus. You've already drawn us together and called us into your presence. 
You've already put words of praise and confession on our tongues. You've already met us here by Your Spirit. But as we turn to Your Word this morning, I pray that You would meet us in the unique, beautiful, compelling way that Your Scripture reveals You. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would attend to You. We would see the truth and that we would respond in faith and that you would be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a few weeks ago, I I finished a a great book that was basically a reenactment of uh, April 14th, 1865. If you need some help on your history there, that is the day that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And the 12 days that followed uh, that, there was a manhunt for John Wilkes Booth, who was the, the man who assassinated Lincoln. And Booth was on the run. The name of Booth was already famous. I don't know if you knew that or not. John Wilkes Booth was an actor, but his father was also an actor, and his brother was an actor, uh, and they were both actually more famous than him. John Wilkes Booth was actually, at the time, the least known Booth, who has now, of course, become the most famous. And if you, if you look at that day and the, the days that followed, the story of John Wilkes Booth is really designed, he really acted in such a way so that his name would be remembered. Before he assassinated Lincoln, he sent letters to people detailing what he was about to do so that they could have some history of his plans. The day of the assassination, he did weird things, like quirky, memorable things around people. He sent a letter to the, to the vice president saying, like, this is John Wilkes Booth, like, checking in, something like that. Like, he did some, some crazy things so that people would say, oh, I remember that day. This is what John Wilkes Booth did that day. After he shot Lincoln in the head, if you know the story, he jumped down off the balcony of Ford Theater and he landed on the stage. I mean, this is an actor. This is why this story is is so good and compelling. He landed on the stage and he shouts out, Sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. Clearly a planned speech. As he was chased for those 12 days, if you know the story, he was shot in a barn in Virginia. And as he was dying on the porch of the house where he was hiding, it appears that he even planned his last words. As they were standing over them, he called for them to come hear his last words. They got out their pens and paper, and he says this, tell my mother I die for my country. However, that didn't prove to be his last words. Even though those were the words that he seemingly planned, as he was slipping into unconsciousness, as he was dying, someone overheard him and actually wrote down his true last words. He was apparently laying on his side and looking at his hands, and he muttered to himself, useless, useless. So John Wilkes Booth got what he wanted, a name for himself. But as he died, he found that to be useless, 
Now, that's an extreme example of someone who's crafting an image for their own name. But how many of us spend so much time and energy and enthusiasm towards crafting the particular name by which we are known, the particular traits by which we are known? Some of us perhaps do desire to be famous in different spheres who might want that fame. Maybe it's easy for you to say, no, I don't want that. But perhaps we, we want what we're crafting is that image of being well thought of. Maybe we want a reputation for being a certain way. Maybe we want a reputation for a certain type of action. And so we, we might exaggerate some of our traits so that our name is remembered. We might want, maybe not fame, but at least in our family, in our circles, in our small ponds and of influence, we want impact and to be remembered for those things. All of us, in other words, have the seeds of, of the Tower of Babel. If you remember from Genesis chapter 11, uh, this great tower that those who were set against God, they tried to build to the heavens. And do you remember the name that what they wanted to do was to create a name for themselves? And how did that turn out? Useless, useless. The building project was abandoned when God confused their language. And here's the point. No matter how big the tower you build with your life, and no matter where you build it, no matter what kind of reputation you garner for yourself, what kind of name you make for yourself, every single one of us in our lives will be an abandoned building project at some point. Whatever it is that we've built will not last the generations. And so our lives must be marked by something else than a zeal for our own names. In fact, the Scripture tells us that we are to be zealous for the name of the living God. His is the house. The, the house for His name is the house that endures forever. Whatever house we build will be an abandoned building project at some point, but the house that God builds is a house for His name forever. So, how do we build a house for His name? How are we zealous for that? Here's what I want us to see. Being zealous for God's name means that we identify ourselves with God even when it brings dishonor to us. We actually are part of the house of God forever. When we are zealous for God's name, we identify with God and His name, His reputation, His renown, His house, even when it brings dishonor on us. And the model for us is Jesus Christ, of course, as He drives out uh, these people from the, the temple. The disciples remember in John chapter 2 here that they, they think about Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. And they remember that psalm. But Psalm 69 is, not, is a psalm about God's reputation. It's, so it's not clear at first that why is the house of God the place of His reputation? The connection is 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises to David, that's God's covenant with David, I will have someone on the throne forever in your house and he says, actually, this house that you're building is actually my house. And what does he call it? A house for my name. The house that David builds, the dynasty, the kingship, 
that David builds is a house for the name of God. And so, as Psalm 69 finds David identifying with the reproaches of God, those who are, who are saying things against God, the enemies of God, he says, zeal for your house will consume me. And Jesus Christ fulfills in Psalm 69 when he comes in and he clears out and he says, this is not a house for anything else other than the name of God. His name and His renown. And He's willing to be reproached for it. To identify with the reproaches of God. So first, let's look at this. The dishonor of God's name. Second, we will look at the dishonor of God's Son. And then finally, the dishonor of our calling. First, the dishonor of God's name. What is happening here in John chapter 2? Look at verse 13 with me. The Passover of the, over, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the setting is the Passover. If you remember, this is when uh, Israel celebrated that the angel of death passed over their houses. When they were in Egypt, they put blood on the doorposts. And so this is, in other words, a solemn assembly, or it should be. This is the time where they remember that the very moment where God passed over their sins and looked at the blood of, of the Lamb. This is a time for them to worship. And so, what is the problem here? The problem is why Jesus is so upset is that this solemn assembly has become a marketplace. It's lost its holiness, its specialness, and people are taking it light. They're taking it common. They're taking it as a matter of course. But this is the most special holiday of God's grace to his people. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So we're told here that there's two services being offered in the temple. Animal sales and money lending, money changing. And first thing we need to see is this. These services make total sense. There's nothing wrong, per se, with these services. These are both, both of the services that provided Israel with its ability to be obedient and faithful when they came to worship God. When they came to worship the temple up to three times per year, but at least once a year, they would go and they would offer sacrifices and they would pay their tithe or their temple tax. And these two services correspond with the two things that people were there to do. They were there to, to offer sacrifices. Well, if an Israelite lived 100 miles away or 200 or 300 or however far away from Jerusalem, what sense did it make to, to lead a goat or a sheep? Uh, that's not a travel, uh, an animal that travels well those distances. It, they would set up, rather, an exchange where you could buy the animals once you got to Jerusalem. Similarly, the the money changers. That actually makes sense. Why? Because you have to remember that Israel right now is a Roman colony. This is, and during Jesus' time, uh, the, the exiles have already happened. Israel went to Babylon. Judah went to Babylon, and it's been 500 years since that happened. So, in other words, there's what's been called the diaspora. There's been the exile. There is Jews in every place, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, all those places right around where Israel is. And so people are coming from all over to come to Jerusalem, and they have different currencies. It's been hundreds of years. And they need to change their money into what's called the Tyrian coinage, which is what the temple tax, the half shekel, 
was to be paid in. So it was a necessary service, both of these. It's possible um, that, that they were doing something dishonest. I don't think that's in view here because what Jesus says is, why are you treating this like a marketplace? The problem is not the services they're offering. The problem is this is not a place for business. This is a house for God's name. This is my Father's house. And so what does Jesus do fulfilling Psalm 69, full of the Spirit? He defends the name of God and He drives out the business. Now, it's important to see here that while what Jesus does here is forceful, it's not riotous. That's sometimes the, the picture that we get in our heads of Him violently hurting people or whipping people to get them out or something like that. Certainly forceful, but Jesus didn't do anything here that would have brought the Roman police onto the temple mounds, okay? He is making a disturbance. He takes a whip. That's how you drive out cattle, by the way. He's touching them. He's getting them out, right? He comes over to a table. He turns over the money. It's forceful, but he's not rioting here. The shocking thing is not the violence. The shocking thing is the audacity. And that audacity is noticed, and the dishonor that goes to God's name because there's money changing and selling of animals in the temple space, that dishonor that is on God goes to Jesus Christ. So let's look at the dishonor of God's Son. The audacity that Jesus has is noticed by the Jews. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to Him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? These Jews are most likely the Sanhedrin, this ruling class of temple officials. And they say to Him, what sign do you show us? Let me translate that for you. What gives you the right to do what you're doing? What gives you the right to do this? And Jesus says, I will show you a sign. What is the sign? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now when Jesus says that, He's he's offering both an insult and an insight. It's an insult and an insight. In three days, I will raise up the temple if you destroy it. The insult is this. In a sense, he's calling their bluff. He's saying to them, if you want a sign, I'll tell you exactly how to get one. Destroy this temple and I will raise it back up. Because anyone who could rebuild the temple after three days would certainly be the master of the temple and would certainly have the authority to drive out anything that was unrighteous in the house of God. But it's a sign that they're not going to get because they're not actually willing to destroy the temple, in a sense. And so they just have to live with the insult. But Jesus is also giving an insight because what he's saying is this, ultimately they do take him up on his offer. If you'll destroy this temple, they do meaning they destroy His body. They are the ones who lead the charge against this Son of God who has insulted them. And the dishonor that was first on the house of God now is on the Son of God. It's an insight into what is about to happen because Jesus is going to the cross and His death and resurrection is what ultimately gives Him the right 
His body is the temple. John tells us that clearly. He says he's talking about the temple of his body. The flesh houses the presence of God. That's what the temple is. Jesus is God made flesh. They are much closer to the reality of God's presence than they've ever been in no matter which temple they've had, whether it was the tabernacle wandering in the wilderness or the the first temple that Solomon built that was later destroyed or the one that they have right now, which is called the second temple that is later going to be destroyed in AD 70. These temples all get destroyed, but they're closest than they've ever been to the reality of God's presence. And the temple, like so many types in the Old Testament, was a good thing that pointed to an ultimate thing. There was the sacrificial system, what they're doing right now with these these animals. That's a good thing. But ultimately, the Scriptures say, will not cleanse the people of God from their sins. The, The throne of David, the promise of 2 Samuel 7, where God comes and says, David, I'll have a your offspring on the, on the throne forever. That was a good thing, but it pointed towards a better Davidic king than they had ever on the throne. The priesthood, this good thing to stand between God and man as a mediator. There was no priest that could ultimately do that. So Jesus came as the Son of God. He came as the King of David. He came as the priest, but He also came as the temple. The dwelling place of God is with man. What the temple was capturing, the presence of God with His people. And you see how Jesus then fulfills Psalm 69. Go back to Psalm 69 with me, where He says this, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is David's psalm. And David says, basically in a nutshell, in the first few verses there, what he's saying is this, are you going to let the dishonor that's coming on to me is really a dishonor on you, God. And are you going to let that stand? Are you going to let the name of God be dishonored? Because in dishonoring me, they're dishonoring you. Are you going to let that happen? And John 2 shows us that in Jesus Christ, yes, that's exactly what God is going to do. He is going to let the dishonor that is going on to His servants be on His own name Himself. I will let my servant David be dishonored. I will let my son be dishonored. And Jesus says, he fulfills this, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I will let, God says, the reproaches fall on my son. I will let him be counted among the scoffers and the malefactors. I will let him be crucified between two insurrectionists. I will let him be hung naked. I will let them mock the name, the King of the Jews, and put it on a sign. And I will let my name be shamed. And Jesus Christ, zeal for God's house, consumed Him in both senses of the word. When we say, I am consumed with something like this passage also says, we say, I am eaten up with it, right? I am focused on it. It means that, but also it means to be 
taken up or to be burned up, to be removed. And Jesus in both sense was consumed with the name of God, but He was also consumed on the cross. His life was burned up. It was taken away. But not forever. He was not consumed by the grave. His flesh re-knit. His body, the temple, was rebuilt. And in three days, He rose from the dead, and that temple is forever. There is no abandoned building project with Jesus Christ. His name, His renown, the house that He built is forever. And that is why Jesus died in one sense was to secure the dwelling place of God is with man forever. There is no destruction of this temple. And it takes a while for the disciples to realize the magnitude of what He has just said and of the reality that's about to happen on the cross and in the resurrection. Look at verse 22. It says, When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. It takes a while for them to, for it to click. And this is really important uh, to John to tell us. Actually, 30 times in the Gospel of, of John, 30 times John tells us that disciples don't understand something. They're left in mystery. I think that's compelling. I think I think about that, right? How often they didn't see and how often we don't see at first glance. We just hear the name of Jesus and it doesn't, it doesn't resonate what, what's important about this. And we think this is a historical figure. Um, you know, it was important in some ways, but it, it takes a while sometimes. But eventually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they believed, it says, the Scripture and the Word that Jesus spoke. They connected that when Jesus was talking about this, He was talking about His body. And they believed we got to ask ourselves if it has clicked for us. As we look back on the claims of Jesus, when He says, my body will be killed and on the third day will be rebuilt, and that is the way that you can be with God forever. That is the temple. That is the place where you worship. That sacrifice stands above time forever. The sacrifice of God for His people. The dishonoring of God's Son brings in the honoring of His children, God's children, us. So the disciples believed. They looked at this temple, this noisy, busy place. But then they saw this could never solve the problem of distance with God. Has that clicked for us? Or is our perspective more like the Jews, the Sanhedrin, in this passage where we say still to God, what gives you the right to say things into my life? To tell me that the only significance I will find is in your name. What gives you the right? 
See, the difference between someone who believes as the disciples do and those who don't, the Sanhedrin here, is not a difference of education. The Sanhedrin had more. It is not a difference of external righteousness and keeping of the law. Certainly, the Sanhedrin had more. The difference is not about reputation. The disciples were fishermen, were lower class men. These were the leaders of Israel. It's not about any of those things. The difference is, what do you believe about the claim of Jesus' authority over your life? God's name was dishonored in the temple. What Jesus did is said, the reproaches that have fallen on God have fallen on me. And he took the shame of the name of God and he put the shame on himself. And now he's creating a people who share in the dishonor of God, the reproaches of God. We are also called to be zealous for God's name. Psalm 69 is fulfilled by Christ. But we have to remember, Psalm 69 was written by David and it's meant to be read and sung by the people of God in every generation. So are we to take up a whip and to come into the places wherever God's church is and drive out whatever evil and ungodliness we find there? I don't think so. Why not? Because we can't answer the way that Jesus answered. When he says, when they say to him, what gives you the right? He says, well, because I'm going to die and redeem Israel. I have the right over this temple. We don't have that same authority, but... We do still sing Psalm 69, and we still are called to have zeal for God's house. We're still called to let the reproaches of God fall on us. The Scripture is clear that we are called to share in the reproaches of God. A couple of questions for us as we close this morning. Knowing that this is the case, that we are called to share in the suffering and in the reproaches of God. I mean, Jesus, for instance, in Luke 9 says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There is a sharing in the suffering and in the reproaches of God. So a couple of questions as we close today. Are you willing, first of all, just in a general sense, to share in the reproach of God? Are you willing to share in the reproach of God? Spurgeon said this, Zeal for God is so little understood by men of the world that it always draws down opposition upon those who were inspired with it. They are sure to be accused of sinister motives or hypocrisy or being out of their senses. See what he's saying? Zeal for God is so uncommon that when anybody demonstrates that, they're likely to be called crazy, hypocritical, or even something more sinister. So that's the question. Are we willing to be accused of those things in our zeal for God's name? Especially in this moment, in this cultural moment where we are called often to stand in opposition to something that may be current? Are we so identified with Christ that, that the reproaches that fall on God are like wounds to ourselves? They, we're so identified with Christ 
that we are like the disciples in Acts chapter 5. Remember when they were beaten and they left with those wounds on their back, rejoicing that they would be counted worthy of suffering for Jesus' sake. So often we are not willing to put forward any opposition. Any kind of reproach that we feel like falls on us needs to get off of us and onto someone else. This may involve us having a willingness to speak the truth when we are asked to, a willingness to not deny the truth when it is asked of us, a willingness even to be misunderstood. Are we willing to share in the reproaches of God? If we sing Psalm 69 as the faithful do, we say the reproaches of God have fallen on us. We are His people. Zeal for His house should consume us. Our second question as we close is this. What consumes you? It's so common a word that we sometimes forget its meaning, which is to be eaten up or to be burned up with something. And it's a valuable question to ask. What is it that consumes you? Some of us may be consumed with lust. It characterizes something every day in our lives. Others of us are eaten up with envy, distrust, or discontent. Every day we're We're consumed with this idea of a different life, a different set of circumstances than we have. Some of us are consumed with anxiety, worry about the future. Some of us are consumed with greed. Some of us are consumed with pride. How can I get others to see me, to have a reputation? And we need to remember that whatever experiences we have, whatever safety we can build up, whatever money we're able to accumulate, whatever name or reputation we are able to build, ultimately all of those become abandoned building projects. Useless. Useless. But if we are consumed with building a house for His name, His reputation... And that zeal for that house consumes us. We live to make much of God. What does that look like? It means that we hold more loosely to our own ambitions and needs, our seeming needs. And whenever we, we are dishonored for the name of Christ, we bear it as, a, as an honor, not a, not a shame. It means that we think and exalt the name of think about and exalt the name of Christ Jesus in his death and his resurrection built an eternal house it cannot be destroyed and when we see that it's not just a duty that God requires to be filled with zeal but it's actually the greatest blessing and deepest longing of our hearts to be part of a name that lasts forever. And we will see it. Isaiah 26.8 says this, For your name and your renown 
are the desire of our hearts. See, each one of us has that desire, a desire for something to last beyond what our contribution or building project may be. And it's actually here. It's in the name of God that Jesus took on, that he died for, that he was raised from the dead for, that he, the house that he built is the house where we live. If we, by faith, have trusted in him and believed in him, then we are part of his house forever. Let's pray.